0: Well, if you're wondering when we're going to start Hebrews, because some have been asking me, and I've mentioned that we're going to do that in the fall, so I think we'll start that probably the first week of September, and I'm kind of anticipating that, looking forward to that. The plan is to do Hebrews a chapter a week, so we're not going to go the the slow route through Hebrews like we might normally do, um, but we're going to go chapter a week and kind of get the big picture. Uh, If you're wondering what Hebrews is all about, uh, I'll just choose one phrase from Hebrews, and that is, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith and so we'll see the supremacy the sufficiency the greatness of christ and uh, I'm, I'm really anticipating eagerly with fear and trembling it's one of those intimidating books but uh just a, a book like no other one that exalts the the supremacy of christ and i'm praying that it'll be good for us as a church family and as a church body well yesterday all day i had the uh Exciting privilege of hanging out with the Crossroads Ministry of OBC, the the young adults, the twenty somethings, however you'd like to categorize that group, in in rural Iowa, and uh, we were going to talk about the about the uh, the glory of Christ, the the greatness of Christ, and I kind of wanted to take a non traditional route in doing that, and so what we did is we talked about things that undermine the glory of Christ, and since we were in rural Iowa what we engaged in is some sacred cow tipping. So, you get it? All right, come on. (laughs) So, uh, we looked at 16 sacred cows in pop Christianity, Uh, slogans, bumper sticker Christianity kind of stuff that end up devaluing Christ, that end up undermining Christ and His greatness. And uh, I was encouraged to share some of those with you this morning. And so we won't be in a particular text. Uh, some of these won't actually even have a text we'll look at, but we will look at the Bible, trust me. It is Omaha Bible Church anyway. Um, <laughs> but we are going to talk about probably five or six of these this morning. So let's look at some sacred cows uh, that undermine the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. These are cows that we need to tip over and have processed. Is kind of what the plan is, and uh, I'm not sure how many we're going to get done. We actually have um, a serious uh, Matthew 18 church discipline matter we need to talk about at the end of the service, and so we'll just kind of see how this goes between now and then. So we're going to look at these slogans. Um, I want to give a preface though, and I tried to, I, I really tried to do my best at, at trying to shepherd even um, the young people. Uh, young adults in trying to think through, uh, not um, over-polarizing and going the other direction. So let me say, uh, opening now, as I said yesterday, um, with them, uh, each of these has something good about them, okay? So as you're offended by me saying your sacred cow needs to be tipped over and processed, um, each of them has something good about them and is probably, no, surely the result of responding to some kind of error... And so what do we do as Christians? We see something that is undervaluing Christ, and so we want to correct that and, and, and have a more biblical presentation of something regarding Christ. But as is so often the case with us, us, myself included, we polarize and we go the other direction, and before you know it, now we need to correct that. And we run the danger right now, if we're going to do some correcting, of overcorrecting. And uh, when you... Pay attention to some things in in historical theology. You see this happens again and again and again and again. Someone denies the humanity of Christ and says he's only deity. And then all of a sudden you go on the other side of it and now he's only human and he's not deity. And the reality of his personhood is he is God and he is man. And that's an easy one. So let's have an attitude of humility here. And uh, hopefully have it be a learning process. But uh, I hope by now you have your shoes on and uh, the kind you can get dirty. <laughs> I'll stop. I'll stop. Man. I was so impressed with the uh, young adults. They think I'm funny. You don't. <laughs> I mean, my self-esteem was so high. And and now look. As a footnote, by the way, I really was impressed um, She had a great time. Uh, We had good dialogue and question and answer time and uh, just awesome. I'm really thankful. They're asking me questions like, so as next generation maybe leaders in the church, what do we need to be looking out for? What can we do? Uh, What are the weaknesses in the church right now we can help with? Uh, It was was a delight. Uh, So you should be encouraged. I hope you're encouraged the kind of questions and and kind of retreat I would want to have and and I didn't want to leave at the end of the day. Uh, So be encouraged by that. First sacred cow on our list coming from kind of bumper sticker Christology, if you will, is one I've said before maybe many times in the past. Uh, It's this slogan. It's a relationship, not a what? It's not a religion. Okay, We won't take a lot of time on this one, but it it is kind of a sacred cow, and we say it so easily. Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion, uh, which is problematic on a couple of levels. Um, Probably won't look at any Bible verses on this one, sorry to say, um, but I'll talk you through it, and I think you'll appreciate it anyway. For starters, this is problematic because the word religion means relationship. (laughs) Okay? Let's let's just, uh, you know, maybe... Stop and think about it for a moment, and you, you don't have to look very many sources up, especially older sources, and uh, you're going to hear things like, religion is a relationship with one's deity. Like three or four times in one paragraph in, in, in one of Berkoff's books, uh, uh, A Theologian, that's how he describes religion. And so when we say, it's a relationship, relationship, not a relationship. <laughs> it's a religion, not a religion. Um, And so maybe that's not very helpful, Um, and yet it is. it has been helpful, hasn't it been? It's been helpful when people think that uh, being a Christian is going to church once a week where some guy up front behind a fence does some things and does all these things for you. Even in history there have been times where that guy sings for you, that guy prays for you, that guy does all of this stuff for you, and you can come back next Sunday and have him do it for you again. And in the meantime, you might just be able to live however you want to live. Okay? And so, it's good to have a slogan like this, where it's at the right time in response to something, and we're trying to clarify, and we say, you know what, it's about a relationship. See, it's not just Sunday. And it's personal. It's not just through that guy up there behind the fence in the sanctuary. And so I want to say, let's not overcorrect, but let's do some correcting because the danger, the reason this, I think, is a sacred cow is because we've gone so far now as it's a relationship, it's a personal relationship, and it has nothing to do with necessarily with other people with the church, which is, by the way, according to the Bible, the pillar and the support of the truth, then we start undervaluing those specifics in the Bible where you do gather together for the preaching of God's word, which is, when you look at it, pretty official. Okay, this isn't something you you do you do at home. Of uh, the believers come together, and there's this official kind ofness of the breaking of bread and, and, and communion. And there is discipline, so there's accountability, okay? And now all of a sudden, we want to make sure that we don't go either direction, really. We want to go both directions, we might say. But in one sense, I want to be done saying it's about a relationship, not a religion. I want to be done with that because, again, we might say, because a religion's about rules and regulations. Well, do we have rules? I mean, in one sense, the reason it can be a relationship between you and Christ to the point where you can even cry out to God and say, Abba, Father, that's relationship, right? Personal. The reason it is, is because there are rules. We're rule breakers, right? And Christ kept all the rules on our behalf, and that's how we even have the gospel, so his righteousness can be credited to us, so we can have justification, so we can have reconciliation, so we can have a relationship, Or you could say religion, because it means the same thing. (laughs) And so I'm just trying to get you to think about this kind of stuff. And maybe it's time to put that one to bed, unless you're in a certain kind of context where you can explain yourself and develop it. But let's just make sure we develop it, and we don't just do the bumper sticker thing, because we're so used to saying it, because we've been saying it for so long, and we expect unbelievers to understand what it means, too. You know? You know? Let's move on to another sacred cow that might be worth tipping over or at least balancing out. I don't know. No creed but Christ. No creed but Christ. Or we might put it in other terms. We might say, you know what? We don't subscribe to human-made systems of theology because we are biblicists. Ooh, that sounds good. It sounds pious. It sounds very, very godly, right? I've said it before. I, I, I'm trying to be a biblicist, and I'm not following a systematic system of theology. It sounds great, commendable. You can see where it comes from historically, because you end up having these these repressive kinds of 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 church systems that say this is what you must believe don't confuse us with the facts we don't care what the bible says this is who we are and we say you know what we don't care who you are we we, we believe the bible we believe what the reformers ended up articulating as what sola scriptura scripture alone is our ultimate source of authority and they're going to quote 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 I'm giving you bible verses now by the way <laughs> right all scriptures Inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We believe in sola scriptura. We want to be biblicists. We want to say things like, no creed but Christ. Yeah. But I think we'd better be careful because it might be a sacred cow where we're acting maybe even arrogantly. Because, by the way, the Protestant reformers who didn't invent 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, by the way, but they did recover this idea that Scripture's ultimate authority. But by the way, when you read their writings, they cite other people quite often. They're not saying we shouldn't pay attention to history and how the Spirit of God has worked. Among the people of God to help them to understand things that can be otherwise be complex but we We sometimes act arrogantly thinking nobody's ever understood this before but since we're biblicists and we have the spirit We've got to figure it out. I don't need to pay attention to anything historically It's probably not very good I like to say sometimes Antiquity doesn't equal orthodoxy Just because it's old doesn't mean it's right. But novelty doesn't equal orthodoxy either. Okay, Just remember that people who believed in the Trinity said the Bible is our ultimate source of authority. People who rejected the Trinity said the Bible is our ultimate source of authority. Where I don't want us to be is in a place where we're going to say I don't care how the Spirit of God has worked in the life of other believers before me. I've got my Bible. Just leave me alone and I'll figure it out. Bible's ultimate source of authority. Yes. But wouldn't it be helpful to maybe pay attention to see, you know, how other believers have articulated themselves when it comes to these things? I I think it would be. It would be helpful. We could save ourselves uh, a lot of heresy. All along being like the noble Bereans examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Not putting ourselves under it as the ultimate authority, but Acts 17, 11, even examining the scriptures to see if these things are right. Let me just read you a sample from the Nicene Creed of 325. Listen how good and how, how well thought out this is. Ultimate source of authority? No. Evidence of the Spirit of God's work? In believers? To help us? Yeah. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. and was crucified under, uh, also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I want to go, Hallelujah! It is so carefully worded and thought out and battled for back and forth because it's capturing the reality that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. But He also most certainly, absolutely is a real human being. And that's birthed out of a major battle regarding who Jesus is. Is he really God? And if he's really God, how could he ever be man? Well, How how could that be? Even the fact that it says, crucified under Pontius Pilate. You say, why did that bad guy get his name in the creed? Even that is a great statement in the sense that we're not talking about Narnia history. We're talking about real history where he's a real guy because Jesus wasn't only God showed up in the form of spirit. no. Contrary to Gnosticism, he was a real human being. So much so that he was crucified under his historic authority. His name is Pontius Pilate. Just very well thought out. I'm not suggesting again that this is where we need to go for truth. Scripture, sola scriptura, ultimate source of authority by which everything is evaluated, including that statement. But it is so helpful and so not arrogant to say, let's at least observe some of these things where these battles were before us so that we might learn, so that we might learn. And I'll say what I said yesterday to the young adults this this is a careful this is a careful one because many times religious organizations are going to come in the name of history and say history's on our side who do you think you are saying it's the bible so please don't misunderstand what i'm saying at the end of the day it's going to be what does god's word say ultimate authority because quite frankly you can prove anything with history but let's at least learn from some of these things and not mean well, but come across and really maybe be arrogant by saying, I'm a biblicist. Everybody is. <laughs> some of us are just better at it than others. <laughs> okay? The Pharisees were biblicists. Actually, they weren't. <laughs> but they would have said they were, and they believed the authority of the Bible. So let's pay attention to history. That's all. Let's, let's be informed. Let's be wise about these things. If you're nervous and you need Bible verses, Acts 17:11 is the Bereans. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 would be a um, text I referenced. I was just trying to be funny. They would have laughed yesterday. Thanks. Um, there you go. I feel better now. A third sacred cow, uh, a slogan that we might want to uh, correct would be this one. You ready to be offended? That's not the slogan. Um, (laughs) Ask Jesus into your heart. I think really well-meaning. Probably not very helpful in most scenarios. Think with me about why. What we mean when we say, ask Jesus into your heart, Johnny, what we mean is respond to the gospel, right? So we present the gospel, which is the good news about Christ and His perfect work on our behalf, and then we say it's time to respond. And what we say to people is now, especially to little kids, so would you like to ask Jesus into your heart? My question for you is, where where is that in the Bible? My next question for you is, What is the biblical response to the gospel? What do we call people to do? What, what, what does, what does Paul call people to do? What does Peter, Peter call people to do? What do you do? You hear the good news about Christ and there needs to be a response. And the response is what? Believe, right? And some of you said repent. And the the answer is yeah, right. Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's even a command. Acts 17, God is calling everyone everywhere to repent. Command mode. And so why don't we just commit ourselves from now on, cease with coming up with something new and novel that's quite confusing, and just go back to what Scripture says, and let's tell Johnny to believe the gospel. And you say, but we need to make it more understandable because we don't know what belief is. I'm totally with you. So let's use some other words like trust and let's explain what trust is and and independence and let's explain what that means but let's use biblical responses what does repent mean let's explain these things you know what i'm saying and i'm not and i tried to say even yesterday i'll say now don't become like the, the the gestapo and all this stuff and it probably comes from somewhere good you're trying to explain it to a young person they don't know what these things mean You're trying to let them know that just because you show up and you're in a Christian family doesn't mean that there isn't a place where you must believe and make it personal. And so we say, ask them into your heart because our hearts are personal. I'm not not suggesting it doesn't come from a good place. Because we can go the other direction. There's nothing personal about it. Just repent and believe while you're at it. And I won't explain what that means. I'm so tired of people saying ask Jesus into your heart and that's not biblical <laughs> You know, let's not go there. Let's not polarize this thing It is a personal thing to believe and to trust in Christ And from your innermost being you're trusting in Christ, right? We're trying to get that across But it creates a lot of confusion What is it to have Jesus in your heart? It's confusing Not only is it confusing, it's not biblical, it leads to other problematic things. All of a sudden, Jesus is in my heart, but now we're starting to think maybe... Sometimes people even end up thinking He's not really real, He's just in my heart. Because He's real to me. He lives, He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. I can't believe I'm singing in front of you, but... (laughs) You ask me how I know He lives and how does the song go? Because he was bodily resurrected from the dead, seen by hundred, literally hundreds of people, recorded in Acts fifteen or First Corinthians fifteen. He lives, he lives, Christ. Ye. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. You ask me how I know he lives objective, actual, historic, bodily resurrection from the dead with real, if not, no, hundreds of eyewitnesses, historic reality. doesn't mean it's not personal to me. Because I have believed in him, and I know in whom I have believed. This is personal, right? And I know that he is able, right? This is very personal. But we end up starting to get pretty confused, and then we learn more theology from our songs. On another level, and I'm spending a little bit more time on this one, it's a problematic thing to say, response to the gospel is to ask Jesus into your heart, and where does Jesus live right now? I heard one of my kids saying it the other day. Jesus lives in my heart. So if you're the one that taught him that, we'll have a confessional booth set up afterward over here. I don't think Jesus lives in Owen's heart. I don't think Jesus lives in Josiah's heart. I don't think he lives in your heart. And I'm not trying to be mean. You know where I think Jesus lives right now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. And by the way, you need Him to be there. There is this biblical doctrine that we forget about sometimes called the ascension. I think the Spirit of God lives in you and dwells you. He might even be called the Spirit of Christ. But the second person of the Trinity is seated at the right hand of the Father. Please look with me at Luke 24. Please look with me at Acts chapter 1. Please look with me at Acts chapter 3. And let's recommit ourselves today to the historic biblical doctrine of the bodily ascension of Jesus. It might really help us understand Jesus is and where He is and how He works and oh how about this it might create in us a greater expectation of His return because if He's in your heart He doesn't need to return news flash Jesus is in heaven and we want Him to be there We need Him to be there. Luke Luke chapter 24 says... In his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. And who's that going to be? Spirit, right? He's going to he's not going to leave us as orphans, but he's going to leave us. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, by the way, you see Jerusalem over here. And then on the other side of the Mount is Bethany, all within visible visibility. He's going to ascend there and lifting up his hands. He blessed them while he blessed them. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Then Acts chapter 1, which is just the continuation of the the Luke narrative about what has happened here. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we've got expectation based upon ascension. And then if you go to chapter 3, verse 21. 3.21 says, and based upon verse 20, it's referring to Jesus. We know that at the end of the verse. But 21 says, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things. The idea is he's there in heaven until the time for restoring all things, which would have to do with his return. In fact, one translation even translates it this way. Whom heaven must receive, or it translates it this way, who must remain in heaven. Capturing the idea. Jesus... Ascended into heaven. We could go to the book of Hebrews, which we're not going to do for the sake of time. Chapter 7. He's interceding on our behalf. What does he do? He sends the other helper. Another helper who's like him. The spirit. And now what do we do? We wait eagerly. Romans chapter 8, right? We're, even the spirit in us is causing us to want Christ to return. Why would we want him to return if he's already here? Let's just recommit ourselves to orthodox biblical Christianity. I want him to come back. Because remember, when he comes back, he's going to restore all things. He's going to make all wrongs right. There's this expectation for this to happen. But please don't misunderstand. He hasn't left us alone maybe we would have a good, healthy recovery of the biblical reality of the Spirit of God's work if we weren't making up new ways of explaining belief and repentance. Are you with me? (laughs) Maybe we could talk more about it sometime. I wanted to preach a whole sermon on the Ascension sometime this summer, but it's probably not going to happen, so I just squeezed it in. Thank you very much. Let's do at least one more of these. And I'll just do this. I keep saying I'm going to do these quickly, and I just don't know how to do anything quickly. Um, number four. Are we on four? This one is old. The, the, the students yesterday, for the, not, they're not all students, but the young adults, many of them have probably never uttered these words, but some of you have, um, and you've heard it before. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Since it's relatively recent, made famous by Campus Crusade, let's dip it over. (laughs) If it's not biblical, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Are you sure of that when you tell somebody that, that you don't know? That's your lead-in for evangelism? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You can see where that would come from, especially where uh, you might come out of a religious perspective where it's, you know, it's just cold nothingness and there's really no emotion involved and it's maybe wrath, 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 I don't know, and there's no emphasis on love and to be able to come like a cold cup of water to somebody and say, I want you to know about the love of God and I want you to know about His great good news gospel plan of redemption so please don't over polarize but to just go up to a stranger and say god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life maybe god has a horrible plan for their life in fact he does if they don't repent and believe the gospel now i'm not going to start saying that to people At least not the first thing out of my mouth. I'm going to tell them the gospel. I'm going to tell them the need to believe in Christ. Apart from which there is no forgiveness of sins. Apart from which it is horrible. The drive-by slogan is probably more hurtful than helpful. We certainly don't live in an age where people are just so overwhelmed with guilt that they they, they don't know anything about love. No, we think, when we hear something like that, well, of course he loves me because I'm a great guy. And I deserve it. Narcissistic to the bone. I saw a painting one time. I want to do a PowerPoint for this maybe sometime. I don't know. Each one of these will have a picture I saw a drawing one time, and uh, it was a drawing of Noah's Ark, and the waters are getting really high, and people are clawing the Ark, trying to get in. I mean, think about what happened in Noah's Ark. It's not the bathtub version, I know, but really, it was judgment upon the whole earth, and people are clawing to get in the ark and there was a bumper sticker on the back that said smile god loves you <laughs> just think about our slogans and and there's truth in them but but they're so sloganish that they become just not helpful we could say that God loves sinners absolutely. We, we could say that God loves everyone a, on a certain level. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's certainly showing mercy to everyone absolutely. We can go down that road. But just to make it a slogan without any explanation is, is probably more hurtful than helpful. And so just be careful. Be careful what you say to people and how you say it. You know, Psalm 2 is such a such a great psalm. It's reference, it's cited as referencing Christ in the New Testament quite often. And In Psalm 2, you've got that embrace the sun. There's there, there's refuge, there's salvation in the sun. And then you also have at the end, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. And that might take some explaining, and it really doesn't work on a bumper sticker. <laughs> But now it brings glory and honor to Christ because it's not the one-dimensional Christ. It's the true biblical Christ who is glorified in His saving, yes. And who is glorified in His judicial actions, yes. Because He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He's the great Savior. So let's work on being thoughtful. But again, please don't go the polarization kind of thing. Don't become like John Gershner. And God hates you with holy hatred. And you couldn't even be saved, even if you wanted to be. (laughs) And that's a really good rendition of John Gerstner, by the way. If I only smoked seven packs of cigarettes a day, I could preach like this too. (sighs) I don't think we need to go there. But he's hitting on a nerve that actually is biblical and Right. Psalm 5 does say that God hates all those who do iniquity. You see, God is not like a one-dimensional piece of paper. There are complexities. He's the God who, yes, hates. And He's a God who loves so much that He sends His Son for those in whom He hates. Because we're busy hating Him. Doesn't work on a bumper sticker. But. Or a t-shirt. But, it's the God of salvation. It's the God of redemption. It's the God of righteousness. It's the God whom we love and whom we worship. And it brings Him glory to think rightly about Him, to speak rightly about Him, so that when people do respond to our gospel, they might be responding to the right gospel, the biblical gospel. Let's do one more. And then, we'll wrap things up. Should we do one more or not? Which one to choose? (laughs) Let's do number five. Redeem the culture. Redeem the culture. This is a newer one. This is one I feel pastorally burdened regarding um, in a major way. This is... Ultra trendy you'll feel the pressure if you haven't already redeem the culture In other words, sometimes it's talk spoken of in churchianity as the cultural mandate We don't need to say much about this because we've actually talked about it a few weeks ago when we uh, I preached a sermon that I called Getting the church to mind its own business But think with me if you would redeem the culture Does that sound biblical if you're reading books right now that are good sellers on Amazon in the Christian category, it sounds right. Redeeming the culture. Somebody give me a verse. Yeah, we're going to be here a while. Redemption is tied to what in the Bible? Jesus, yes. Who does Jesus redeem? The culture? Human beings, um, the souls of men and women. That's what he does. I mean, I'll just read one text. I just practically close my eyes and put my finger on a verse. Not really, but... Galatians 3.13, just one verse to help us. Christ redeemed us. He's talking about people from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us. He redeems sinners who need to be bought out of the slave market of sin. And he sets us free. That's redemption talk super trendy now is we've got to redeem culture. It's the cultural mandate. And so what we need to do as a church is we need to be seeking to redeem art. We need to be seeking to redeem education. We need to be seeking to redeem and the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And I would just like you to think about that. We're called to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ who redeems sinners. Our calling, remember, as a church, is not cultural redemption. It's not cultural transformation. Oh yes, we might make an impact because we proclaim Christ and that leads to transformation and then individuals are transformed and they'll impact where they are. So you as an individual, I, I sure hope if you're, gonna be, uh, you're going to be a chef, that you would do your chefing. <laughs> That you would practice your culinary arts for the glory of Christ, because that's biblical. And that you would be salt and light where you are, absolutely, no matter what you do. But Omaha Bible Church is not going to start a culinary arts ministry. Because we need to redeem the whole culture, and that includes that particular aspect. The church has lost its way when we do that, because we, quite frankly, have a pretty basic calling. I mean, We basically do blocking and tackling drills. What we do, what we do is we proclaim Christ. And we supplement that, if you will, or we accentuate that by doing things like having the preaching of God's word for the building up of the people of God and the spiritual gifts together for the building up the people of God. We have the ordinances like like the Lord's Supper and baptism, and we have discipline. And beyond that. I think we'll probably meet next. We can do the same things. <laughs> And I trust your life will be impacted. Your life will be transformed. And if you're going to go and be an electrician, you'll be an electrician for the glory of Christ. But Omaha Bible Church isn't going to start a cultural transformation ministry for electricians. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually really trendy. Here's what happens again and again and again. We lose sight of the importance and significance of our calling, which is a gospel calling. And now we need to find something else to do. Maybe so the world thinks we're more relevant. And quite frankly, we won't be as good at those other things as the world is typically. And we will become irrelevant because we're not doing the very thing that we were called to do, which is to proclaim Christ. And when we proclaim Christ, we'll always be relevant to a certain group. The Bible refers to them as the called. And we're seeking to be relevant to them. Will the culture ever be transformed? Yeah. When will the culture be transformed? When Jesus comes back. So stop acting like he's here. (laughs) Right? If you want to be fancy, the term is we have an over-realized eschatology. Write that down. You could pay extra for that. Eschatology, the, the, the end, the, when, when he returns, over-realized, we're, we're acting as, as if he's already here. Romans 8 has it as an anticipation when he comes back and makes everything right. And then there will be culinary arts perfectly for the glory of Christ. And it can be a ministry. Because everything will be a ministry. But in the short term, that's not what we're called to be and not what we're called to do. But it really is on the horizon as far as you're going to feel the tug. What is your church doing about this particular aspect? What is your church doing about this particular aspect? And you know what? You might say that's a, that's a good cause to be involved in. And as a human being made in the image of God, I could minister to other human beings made in the image of God. And I'm supposed to love my neighbor. And so I think I'm going to go do that. But it's not what we're going to do. Because it's not what we're called to do as a church. And so you can be involved in both. Can be involved in both. Does that make any sense? And how does this undermine the glory of Christ? Well, because we're going to forget the gospel. And the church isn't going to be what the church is called to be. And that undermines the glory of Christ. Somehow, our proneness and tendency is to waver and get off track and to have an identity crisis. And we just need to work really hard at keeping it simple and not having an identity crisis. People say, Pat, what is your vision for the church? And I used to feel dumb because I'm like, I don't know. I kind of think maybe next week we'll do what we did last week. (laughs) And they're looking for something different. You know what? My vision for Omaha Bible Church is I think maybe next week we might do what we did last week. What's a church supposed to be about? It's to be about proclaiming Christ to the lost and to the found. Finding our hope in Him. Finding refreshment in Him. Finding encouragement in Him. Finding forgiveness in Him. Finding redemption in Him. And there are some basic things He's called us to do to highlight and accentuate that. But see, that, my friends, is timeless. And I hope and pray that in 20 years, we're going to do what we do now. Maybe we'll get better at outreach. Maybe we'll be more effective at proclaiming Christ. Yes, yes, yes. But we're just going to keep doing what Christians have been doing for a long time now. Anticipating Christ's return and in the meantime, bringing him glory and bringing him honor well enough cow tipping for the day let me pray and then we do have um, an announcement so let's let's pray together father thank you for time together like this and just opportunities we have to maybe stop and do something a little bit different on a sunday morning and to consider some of these things that we just sort of let slip and let pass things we haven't been thinking about and uh, lord just help us to keep the first thing the first thing, and, and to somehow not become bored with Jesus, and to somehow not become bored with what he's called us to, to be about in this world. At the same time, Lord, we certainly can, can, can be more faithful, but, but we depend upon you for that. We depend upon your spirit, and so we ask that your spirit, who does in fact indwell us, would work mightily and powerfully, that we would have a good gospel witness, That we would find ourselves refreshed. We would find ourselves enamored by the greatness and the glory of Christ. We would find ourselves so loving Christ because of His love for us. That nothing would distract us and cause us to somehow wander down another road. Lift up Christ before us in the ministries before us. Help us to lift up Christ to one another that we would see His wonder and His greatness and His great redeeming power and that we would worship Him. And Lord, even now, as we seek to follow Christ and even following His Word and doing what He says for the life of the church, may this be a time where Christ is lifted up and Christ is exalted as well. In Jesus' name, Amen.